0: Good afternoon, and welcome back to the National Rural Education Association podcast, The Rural Voice. It is our first podcast in January, of the year 2021, and we're glad 2020 has finished and uh, moving forward, and hopefully to better days. Um, I want to remind everyone that our podcast is sponsored by Win Learning. Win Learning is a proud sponsor of the National Rural Education and the podcast. So check out Win Learning and their career readiness uh, tools and just a great segue into what we got going on today on our podcast. So I'm gonna hand it over to Dr. Jared Bigum and he'll introduce and uh, move us forward.
1: Awesome, thank you, Dr. Pratt. And excited about this guest today because not only does he have a rural background and a focus on that professionally, but um, it's someone that has been called all across the country to talk about the work he's done. And so I think it's going to be a good conversation. Uh, and I've known this guy for a while, so, so I'm a little bit embarrassed that I'm going to read his bio, but uh, he's done so many things, I feel like I'd leave something out. So I'm going to read the, the bio of, of Mike Krause, our guest today, and then we're going to get into a stimulating conversation on NREA podcast. So Mike Krause, as executive director of the Tennessee Higher Education Commission, served as the chief advocate before the legislature and executive branch for the state's $2.1 billion higher education budget and successfully launched multiple workforce training programs, resulting in Tennessee being recognized as the top higher education agency in the nation in 2020 by the State Higher Education Executive Officers Association. Awesome accolade there. And most recently, Mike served as the coordinator for all statewide higher education efforts related to COVID-19 and acted as the liaison between campuses and the Tennessee Department of Health and the governor's unified command group during the pandemic. Prior to his role with THEC, Mr. Krause served as a senior staff member for the office of Governor Bill Haslam and as the founding director for Tennessee Promise, one of the flagship initiatives for our state that I, I can't wait to talk about. He's a frequent commentator on in the media. His work has been covered by Politico, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, NPR, CNN, and I think my local Polk County News uh, did a, a, a bio piece on him even. Uh, he also served in the United States Army as a member of the 101st Airborne Division. So first, thank you for your service as a veteran, Mr. Krause. And uh, I, I'm excited about this because we've been on panels going back a decade now, I guess. And so to get you on the podcast where I can pin you down a little bit instead of sitting
2: beside you is going to be awesome. Thank you, guys. i really excited to be on. This is my first I'm in week three of the private sector, which is, you know, an interesting transition to be sure. And these are kind of the exact kind of conversations that I had I had foreseen trying to have in my second act after government service. So thank you guys for having me on. <laughs> uh, and I'll say this, that you have a,
1: uh, we were talking about this a little bit before the show began. Uh, you've got a prolific Twitter account. You're a blue check and, uh, man, just off the chain since leaving state government. It's, I can't even let my kids read it anymore. It's, it's so crazy. Uh,
2: so, you know, my Twitter, what I like to think I bring to the Twitter universe is equal parts education policy and food. Um, <laughs> you know, one of the fun things about my job the last, really, especially the last seven years, is so much of the work, and, and this gets into our, our discussion today, was about rural areas, And uh, I got to spend time in every county in the state. And I got to find every great cheeseburger in the state. And I felt like uh, it was my duty to share that uh, via Twitter. And so it's always so funny. You know, you tweet something very thoughtful. You think about education policy and it's like, yeah, you know, a couple people interact with it. But if you tweet about who's got the best barbecue in Tennessee, get ready. Uh, Buckle up because you're about to go on a Twitter conversation of thousands of people yeah you
1: are it's you against the world at that point point. and i honestly i had that just reminded me about a trip we made i'd forgotten about with a couple other uh, state government folks we did a a week long road show uh, presenting the superintendents and i definitely remember your biggest strategy for the week was planning where we were eating lunch, either before or after our presentation. So it's no joke about your love of food on social media.
2: Well, you know, it gets to how people feel about their community. Um, You know, I grew up in a rural area uh, in in Putnam County, Tennessee, and everybody in Putnam County, we've all got our allegiances, and those are primarily around a place called Ralph's Donuts. But uh, the people, everybody, you know, listening, one of the things about a rural area that makes it who it is is, is where you eat and, and, and who you see there. So when we did that statewide tour Jared's talking about, which is actually a really good touchstone for what all of this work has looked like, I think, because that that tour in 2014 kicked off the work that, you know, to some extent is culminating or has culminated in Tennessee right now. But when we did that tour, you know, it was just a, a validation of you can't do things from Nashville, um, you've got to get out. You, and yeah, you do need to eat at the Burger Basket, which is in Brownsville, Tennessee, which I heartily endorse. Uh, you know, you do need to get out. you got to eat with people. You've got to get out in their communities and see things firsthand. And I would say on the rural county side, I've always been, you know, right now, the way I'm thinking the most about rural education opportunity is about the intersection between career and technical education and higher ed. And I spent a lot of time the last few years standing in CTE labs at Lake County, Tennessee, or actually one of my last trips I took in my last role at the state was uh, in Warren County. And when you're standing in one of those CTE labs, uh, if you haven't done it and you're listening, I encourage you to, because it to me represents probably one of the biggest opportunities that our state and our country has right now, which is mobilizing CTE, career and technical ed, to be a pathway for students that could have a bunch of off-ramps. It may be that that student goes to college and they've just got this incredible technical foundation. It may be that that student needs to go to work right after high school. And because of CTE, they have gained skills that make them uh, able to earn a great wage for their family. And a lot of our strategy that began at that statewide tour Jared mentioned was about figuring out where each county's college access pipeline was leaky. And, and trying to, to plug it.
1: Yeah. No, you're uh, you're absolutely right. We've talked about that a lot on this show. And, and I know um, Dr. Pratt, as he travels across America when he's able pre-pandemic and somewhat during pandemic, that um, I think that's something that you find is a common thread in a lot of rural communities, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah. And I think you, Mike and Jared both, but Mike hit a good point about visiting and getting out of the, the, in our, in our case Nashville, but you know in, in Nashville getting out of the beltway, getting out with people. And I think you know seeing those community or what's come out of you know recently is this thing called promote regionalism. And I think that's been from our state directors, but I think that's been a big part of it of we can't be so singularly focused on one town but a region and several towns in that region. So can you can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in our state and about promoting the region as a whole? Yes. I mean, when
2: I look back at the public policies that I think have most connected with students, they always came from somebody going to them and asking them what they need, as opposed to policy being developed uh, with a solution in mind, if that makes sense. And what I have seen when I'm out and have been out you know, for seven years uh, out in these communities, the number one thing I see is that, Every single community has some unique thing that is special and an opportunity. And the other side of the coin is most communities have some unique challenge. And even if the challenges are uniform, let's talk about broadband availability for a moment. I mean, obviously, that's an issue in so many of our rural communities in Tennessee and across the country. But, you know, even if a county is facing what seems like a similar broadband challenge, You know, when you dig a little deeper, you find out, no, there's some particular facet that maybe makes it unique here. And so that's, one, it was really interesting, but two, it just drove home to me, there's just, there are similar challenges, and then there are also similar, I think, promises in all these communities. And I I mean it, every single county in the state, you know, probably our most rural county in Tennessee is Hancock County, I would say, and they'd probably agree with me, uh, and maybe Lake County, Tennessee. And in both of those counties, you go and you find uh, incredible opportunities that as a rural area, and again, being from a rural area, I think sometimes are taken, maybe not recognized. And in, in, in my travels, what I saw is all of these counties had something very cool that needed to be leveraged. And then they also had some big challenges that needed to be addressed. And so I'll dive into that specifically. Um, career and technical education, uh, in my mind is about two things. Uh, it's about having great instructors and great equipment. And we face challenges in both of those respects all over the place. Um, I think a lot about, we want the best welding teachers ever for our students or the best adv- advanced manufacturing teachers ever for our CTE students in a rural area. But we're competing in a totally different wage market for that teacher. And so taking a hard look at how and why we pay CTE teachers, what they make, uh, I think is a rural education issue. I think it's something we're going to have to dig into more deeply because we all know that CTE has evolved past, I hate to even use the phrase, but shop class. That's not what's happening anymore. And that is a big thing, Alan, that I took away from my travels is we've got to think long and hard about how we compensate CTE teachers, because our ability to do that well directly determines if CTE continues to be something that, yes, you can go to work based on what you learned in CTE, or you can show up to one of our technical colleges with advanced standing. The distinguishing factor there is, I think, about who we're able to attract teaching. And then the second factor is about equipment. And I'm really proud of what we've done in Tennessee around CTE equipment, especially in rural areas. We were able to launch a program at my agency called Spark, supporting post-secondary access in rural communities. And what Spark did, to go back to my original theme, we did not do a top-down approach. Hey, you all can use these funds to buy this kinds of equipment. We went to the community and said, well, what do you need? And that then built the grant proposal. And I think that was my biggest takeaway from the work that I'm trying to now think through a lot yeah. is letting yeah. communities share what they need with the government rather than government maybe sharing what we think you, you need.
1: Yeah. And one of the things I, I, honestly, I really liked about the spark initiative and, and program was it was similar to the rate process at federal levels. The application was really short, easy, Uh, Because, you know, most rural districts don't have the capacity to have full time grant writer or or somebody like that. So um, I think it was an easy lift for rural districts that wanted to try rural schools that wanted to try to participate in that program. And as usual, Mike, you're way ahead of your your uh, the curve. Um, You're getting ahead to my questions before I can even ask them of you. So uh, I wanted to set this, I wanted to set spark up with some of these other initiatives that you've been a part of that have been flagship initiatives for our state getting, getting national recognition, but also like some of the most uh, important initiatives in the history of our state when it comes to education, workforce development, things like that. So the Spark w- was one of those programs, but also we got Drive to 55, we got Tennessee Promise, and and uh I think definitely is, is one of the uh is the head of Tennessee Promise and, are, and one of the originators of the statewide plan and and the um what I would call the evangelist for Tennessee <laughs> Promise for a lot of years. Accurate. Um, walk us through that a little bit, what The thinking behind it was the origination and then, uh, you know, how the impact for rural communities
2: uh, and students. So, you know, that conversation starts with actually realizing that for so many of our Tennessee discussions the last few years, they've really been economic development discussions disguised as educational discussions and vice versa. And I think in 2012, and 13, we had some fundamental, I mean, pretty earth-shaking realizations as a state. One, the economic development game had changed forever. Tax incentives used to be the center of the economic development conversation. Don't get me wrong, they're still very relevant, but the center of the economic development conversation had become workforce, which is a euphemism for people with skills that can do a job, right? And that conversation in Tennessee led to fundamental realizations that we weren't doing higher ed college access things. We weren't doing them optimally. First, we were relying on students to know their own college opportunities, which if you think about it, not to get into too much of a microeconomics discussion, but there's very few consumer goods that we have relied on people to find on their own, investigate on their own, and then make a decision to engage with that consumer good after really having to travel a bit of a a labyrinth. Well, that's exactly what higher education has set up as a consumer good, if you think about it. Higher education has said, um, we have this good that you need to engage with, but you're going to need to seek it out in many ways. You're going to need to fill out uh, the worst form ever, which is the FAFSA, uh, if you were going to design something to prevent people from going to college, the FAFSA is what you would come up with. And then after you've done all that, you know, we'll see if you will take you. And I just I just don't know of another sector of our economy where that has been the argument we have put forth. And we had to have that realization in Tennessee that the offer we were making to families wasn't clear and it really wasn't very compelling. And that led to this really important thought process, which, which Jared was a part of, which was thinking through, how do you change that conversation? Well, first off, you start with being able to tell a student, and I'm an ardent believer that low-income students in America say the following thing to themselves. They say, I can't go to college because my family doesn't make very much money. And the truth is, because their family doesn't make very much money, they can go to college and we realized we had done a poor job of communicating that. That led to discussion around several local programs that had been in place across our state that employed this last dollar methodology, which is to say, if community college costs $4,000 and you've got $2,000 of a Pell Grant, we will fill the $2,000 donut hole and you can then go to college for free. First off, it makes it fiscally possible. Second off, It's an important message transformation, right? Because the current message is, you know, if you fill out this FAFSA, you might get enough money to maybe go to college. And what we realized from these local programs, two in particular, the Ayers Foundation and at the time a group called Knox Achieves, what we realized with with their last dollar program is you could totally change what you were offering to students. And instead, you could just make a simple statement. You can go to college tuition free. And if you could make that statement, you could really transform how students thought about their future. Uh, And I believe that's what's happened. Uh, Our first year of Tennessee Promise, the number of students going to college went up 7%. Uh, We became number one in the nation for FAFSA completion, which we retain to this day. So Mike, I
1: know uh, one of the things that uh, Tennessee has really pushed uh, in the past few years or or since inception of Tennessee Promise is FAFSA completion. Let's talk about that a little bit.
2: Sure. Um, FAFSA completion to me, you know, one of our challenges in college access, and it's a challenge in college access in a rural area especially, is I think we tend to look at the whole of the problem and kind of think, man, I, I don't know. I don't know if I, you know, I don't know if I can consume a dozen donuts in one bite, for instance, FAFSA was a really good example of us stepping back from the problem. The problem being not enough Tennessee students, particularly in rural areas, were going to college. I think we could have regarded that problem for a really long time. Instead, we chose a bite-sized element. Well, why aren't, what is a hurdle a rural student would face to go into college? Well, they would face the FAFSA, certainly, which in its old permutation was 108 questions. We're really grateful to Senator Alexander Uh, because that's now going to be shortened. But when these conversations started, you were staring down 136 question form. And so when we looked at the macro problem, how do we get more rural Tennessee students to go to college, the micro strategy or tactic that came out was, we got to increase FAFSA completion. Well, how do you increase FAFSA completion? I think first and foremost, you track it. Um, I don't know early on if our state and I don't know if many states now are doing a great job of tracking FAFSA completion by school and not by district or even county, but by school. Because principals, as you all know, uh, hardest working people out there, they want to know where their school stands. And they're very competitive, I've learned. But we hadn't equipped principals with that knowledge. So when we launched our FAFSA campaign, you know, the first premise was we're going to report this data to principals. And then when a principal feels like they're having trouble, we're going to deploy resources. And the name of the game on FAFSA completion is, is giving wraparound supports to school counselors in the form of bodies. They needed my staff to go to their school and hold a pizza night. And, you know, kids, you come, do your FAFSA, we're going to feed you pizza. And while you're in that computer lab doing pizza, we're not going to put this school counselor out there by themselves, a heck agency staff member or TSAC agency staff member is going to be standing there with you. I view our FAFSA completion effort in Tennessee as, you know, obviously I'm a military guy, so I'm prone to those analogies. It was like the first engagement of a battle, so to speak. FAFSA was our first time to really test the strategy of, can you wage a 95 county campaign? Uh, The answer is yes. Okay, well, if you're going to do that, what's the first thing you do? Man, you buy pizza in Fentress County, Tennessee. And then you email the principal, Hey, compared to similar schools, here's where you rank and you sit back. And when principals need help, they'll ask for it. But sometimes just equipping them with that knowledge was what made the difference. But I look back on FAFSA as one of the early indicators that we could do this and that Tennessee could, you know, redefine our destiny some yeah. and and get off those bottom rankings that just, you know, drive us all crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, I think you made a good point earlier too, how all these things kind of tie in with workforce development hidden behind the, uh, the, the curtain, the wizard laws back there, really economic development, <laughs> workforce development and um, talk a little bit about our drive to 55 initiative and, um, and, really with that rural lens and how you get people on board with an initiative like this in a rural county when you know the urban sectors drive a lot of those conversations and a lot of the convenings that we have take place in urban centers but this is really a statewide effort that if we don't have rural communities that come on board we're never going to meet the goals we set for ourselves
2: that's it um I think the first thing we did with Drive to 55 is set the goal, right? You know, it's really hard to go towards a destination that's undefined. And I think we did a good job in Tennessee of saying, how many Tennesseans will need a college degree in order for us to remain competitive? At the time, it was 55%. We were at 38 at the time. We're now at 43 or 44. So we've made really significant progress. And then taking that Drive to 55 goal, I mean, this is the most important thing we did in this respect we localized the goal to each county. And so you could go on our website at the time and you could say, if I'm from Polk County, how many more students need to go to college in order for us to increase our college going rate and meet the drive to 55? I mean, it was really remarkable. And by the way, in most of our rural communities, we're talking like six to seven additional students going to college each year.
1: And, and we're not talking just four year college, either. you know, we're talking.
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh,
1: technical schools and and um, uh, community colleges, which, I, you know, I'm always a community college advocate as a graduate of a community college. So, yeah, it, this was in the entire continuum, not just the white collar jobs.
2: Well, and I should have started with that. I mean, heck, one of our big things we needed to do early on was redefine college because so many uh, people's preconception was this meant a four-year university. Uh, To me, and the definition, I think we were pretty successful was college is any training beyond high school. And in fact, college is training that occurs while in high school if it's aligned to higher ed uh, and delivered via dual enrollment. So that's a great point, Jared. I mean, early on, our focus was you need in your county X amount of students to go to college and that can be a TCAT, it can be a community college, it can be a university, of course. I think what we did, and and also, you know, first we set the goal and then we just traveled everywhere. And Jared was a part of this too. And, you know, we ate chicken with every chamber of commerce in the state <laughs> and, and, and talked to them about their county goal, which that led to the feedback loop. You know, maybe it's the local business owner emailing us saying, hey, I, I actually am gonna need some people in industrial maintenance, who do I call? Or maybe it was they were in the room with the community college president because of our visit, and they forged a relationship there. But the biggest thing with Tennessee's goal around Drive to 55 that I've tried to share with other states is, first off, setting a goal matters. Second off, localize the goal to not just be, well, 55%, what does that mean to me? Well, you know, identify what does that mean in Haywood County? What does that mean uh, in, you know, McMinn County?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that's one of those over I, states do these statewide initiatives all the time. But it's rare that you've got an overarching initiative that pulls in really every community in some way. And and there are all these links that I used to always when it, treat Drive 55 like a Christmas tree. I could hang all these K-12, even early childhood uh, initiatives on that cradle to career continuum that really you, you can point to concretely here's how a kindergarten readiness program really will affect our results in workforce development whether you, whether you realize it or not chamber of commerce so um i love that i love the drive to 55 christmas train i hope after uh, drive to 55 we've got another one that i
2: can hang Well, and it's, I think it's, I'd be remiss not to say you, what you've really got to have in the middle of that too, is the leader with the vision. And and for that, you know, our state was so lucky to have governor Haslam at the time who he would, you know, every governor, first off, you know, for those listening who aren't from Tennessee, Tennessee has done a really great job at electing governors going back a long way. And every governor has some things they're remembered for. Right. And I can go through them, you know, starting with Senator Alexander, who was our governor up until now. But I think people are going to remember Governor Haslam for many things. But for the Pro- Tennessee Promise, for Drive to 55, for his commitment to know that if we want to land, you know, if you're the state that wants to bring in the next Volkswagen, you're, you're going to do that because of people who are ready for the jobs uh, via, via training and higher education.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I remember my first interaction with uh, Governor Haslam. We were, uh, I had just been uh, appointed as executive director of the Tennessee Royal Association. And um, uh, somebody from his office, actually, uh, it was Jamie, a mutual friend of ours that asked about how do they connect with rural superintendents about Common Core and some of the new initiatives that were unfolding a race to the top and um and I said well you got to go meet with the superintendents in their communities like regionally pull report right. four or five together and man Governor Haslam didn't hesitate it was like a month later he's got meetings set up all over Tennessee meeting with these superintendents um and it was it was great uh, for our superintendents to see that he would come out of Nashville to meet with him. But I think it was good for Governor Haslam too, cause he's such a, he, he feeds off that kind of energy. So,
2: um. you know, when you leave, obviously I've now been out of public service for uh, a whopping three weeks, but you do reflect back on what it was like to be in that role. I mean, and being the state's higher ed chief first off was just like the most incredible privilege ever. And I knew that every day, like it was just a great, incredible opportunity And you start reflecting on what advice would you give to other higher ed leaders and K-12 leaders? I actually was on a phone call not long ago with someone who's going to take over a state leadership role in another state. And man, I don't know if it's number one, but it's close. If you're a new K-12 chief or a new higher ed chief, go everywhere. You know, I I think we underestimate how much it means to people to come to their community. It isn't just going to a chamber lunch. It's showing them that your most valuable asset, your time, was worth, they and their community are worth it. You're going to get in your car. You're going to drive out there. You're going to sit. You're going to listen. And uh, really, I mean, I don't know. I'll probably have a, you know, uh, reflections on public service top 10 list soon. <laughs> well, that it's funny. We
1: started this conversation today with uh, Pratt talking about getting, folks getting out of Nashville and how important that is. And you circled back to that again, or folks getting out of their, you know, the urban cores and getting in rural communities, because that's what makes an impact. And in speaking of your public service top 10, as we're wrapping up here, looking back, what are you most proud of? I guess you you can speak in generalities, but also specifically is uh, interacting with rural communities in Tennessee.
2: I think we've changed uh, how students and families perceive their future via Tennessee Promise. And that wasn't me. That was a whole lot of people working towards that. I think we managed to change the if I go to college to win. Now, need to be very clear, there's some headwinds. Uh, and COVID-19 has, has I think, put some of that at risk, right? But I'm I'm most proud of that. And the second thing I'm most proud of is, that you know, shout out to Governor Lee, because he seamlessly took over from Governor Haslam. And then has his own take, which is so importantly focused on CTE in rural areas, right? I'm very proud of the fact I walked into that CTE lab in McMinnville about a month ago, and those kids were proud to be CTE students. That makes me proud because I want those students walking in. That CTE lab was premier. It felt premier. It felt elite and I think we managed, there's still a lot of work to do, but I think the last few years we've managed to change how students in career technical education perceive their own future. We got to keep at it, but those are those are probably the two I'm most proud of.
1: Awesome. Well, I, I, I don't want to uh, end the episode without talking about what you're doing now, your new role and, and new interests are since leaving state government.
2: Yeah. So when I was in state service, what I always knew I wanted to do next was, you know, the good news about state government is you really get to focus in on a state. Uh, But I knew that my next step, I wanted to have broader impact, Um, whether that is getting to work more closely with a district and really hone in or whether it's working with partners in other states. So uh, again, just incredibly blessed and lucky uh, to be here where I am now. I'm at uh, Bradley Aaron Bolt Cummings. Uh, which is a large law firm headquartered in Birmingham with an office here in Nashville and have been able to and hope to be able to use the experience I've had the last several years to help other states, to help districts. And that's that's my charge here. Uh, Some of that is very traditional government affairs going to be working with the General Assembly and working with, you know, a range of stakeholders around things that I think people associate as lobbying but also have a lot of bandwidth and desire uh, to be a strategic thought partner. Uh, I am nothing if not aware of mistakes I made in my career and would love to help people learn from those and also aware that as a state we managed to do some pretty good things and am am looking forward to being able to maybe, I think it's about broader impact as I started with. So uh, I always started my career in education policy focused on This is work that really matters. Uh, People at all ranks of education, always beginning with our teachers. But then you go all the way up to our nonprofit partners, our community partners. You know, we all get into it because we're altruists at our core. And I'm really fortunate that I think I've been able to have a great career that drew on that altruism and now get to continue working in the space.
1: Oh, that's awesome, man. And and, uh, it cracks me up that you mention that phrase that this work really matters because I literally have heard you say that in every speech or panel or whatever you have been a part of going back to I I thought of this too our uh, late 20s we were both on a panel this is when I was back in a district and I don't I don't know what uh, one of your roles at this time maybe in the Haslam administration but we were um, at Vanderbilt and supposed to speak on some topic i'm not sure what and i'm up on I, this for we this is our first time meeting and i'm on the panel and they keep talking about this guy kraus he's not showing up yet we're about starting five minutes he's not here and i'm like who's this joker mike kraus thinks he is that we're all here we're ready to go we're ready to speak and he's, he's not even courtesy to show up yet and then <laughs> literally about 30 seconds before you come sprinting almost in got this uh white sleeve or white uh, dress shirt on with the sleeves rolled up and a tie, and you come bounding up steps and plop down beside the sweats pouring off. Of, and, and I don't remember you'd be at some meeting somewhere. And I, that was my first introduction to Mike Krause. And you led when it came your turn to speak. You're like, this work really matters, which is true. But I, that is, you, you need to patent the phrase, I think.
2: Well, it also matters to make sure you show up for panels on time. Uh, And and I remember that and I was sweating getting there, but no, you know, I draw on it. It's honestly foundational for me is the military experience. You know, when you get out of the military, one of the things the military is really good at is giving you a mission. And uh, when Mm -hmm. I got out of the army, I was like, I want, you know, you're looking for the next mission. You're looking for the next thing that's going to make a difference. And I've just been so fortunate to find that within the education policy world. And, get to meet great people like you, Jared, um, all of our colleagues across the state. I don't know what it's like in other sectors because I've only been in education primarily. But when you get a bunch of education policy people, you walk in the door knowing motive. And the motive is, man, this work matters. And I think if we do this well, there's a, it's not abstract. There's a student whose life will be measurably better. I can't imagine having worked or continuing to work in any other sector.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, we'll definitely put your contact information up with the podcast. Uh, I've already had a couple of people, when you first announced you were leaving state government, ask if um, what your next move was going to be and if you would be willing to come speak to their state association or work with um, some different uh, organizations, given your background. So we'll put that contact information up there so I don't – uh, last thing I want to be Mike Krause's agent. So it's <laughs> a <laughs> world, uh, have your contact information and, uh, uh, Dr. Pratt, you want to sign us off and, and, uh, and Chris on behalf of Chris too, uh, appreciate everybody tuning in today.
0: Well, first of all, you know, Mike, thanks for joining us today. I, I will say this when you, when jared brought it up about you talking about this work matters it really matters i think one of the, the key successes that you didn't mention is the fact that you guys when your work you came across as honest and you came across as a communicator but an honest listening approach and i think people feel that and i think that's a key success to, to the things that happened in tennessee under your leadership so thanks again and thanks for being open and honest with us
2: absolutely i again really appreciated being on so exceptionally supportive of the work y'all are doing and keep at it. We've got a big year ahead. We've got to dig out from, you know, what I think was the educational uh, just shockwave of COVID-19, but just very thankful for the work y'all are doing to to keep us moving forward in, the, in this new year, in this new, new post-pandemic world.
3: All
1: right. We'll see everybody on the next episode. Thank y'all for joining. Thank
3: you. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast and website are those of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jared Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver, and do not represent the affiliated universities and or any organization affiliated with the hosts. This podcast and the accompanying material, including our website, represent the opinions of Dr. Alan Pratt, Dr. Jared Bingham, and Dr. Christopher F. Silver, and their guests to the show and website. The content here should not be taken as medical or professional advice and should be used at your own risk. The content here is for informational purposes only and should be understood as such. The Rule Voice podcast or its hosts do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast, and the information from this podcast should not be referenced in any way to imply such approval or endorsement. Further, the content of this podcast are the property of the National Rural Education Association and are protected under U.S. and international copyright and trademark law. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission. By listening to this podcast, you agree to the terms and conditions, and while we make every effort to ensure that the information that we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Thank you.